When someone is declared bankrupt by a court, many, but not all of their debts are wiped out. But first, their assets are liquidated and sent to creditors piece by piece. At the end, yes, some of the debts are gone, but their accounts are left empty. The record is left with a mark that makes future business much more difficult, if not impossible. It's not a process you want to go through if you don't have to. Now, the biblical bankruptcy process is very different. It's much less punishing for the individual debtor, and it's a process that we must go through if we hope to be spiritually enriched by the Lord. The Apostle Paul explained in Colossians 2 that for those who are saved, for those who have gone through this spiritual bankruptcy process with God, here's what he says, God has erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. All the wrong things that you've ever done in word or thought or action, all of those things count toward your spiritual debt. Maybe some of you have followed the national debt trackers that they have. If you go on that website and you just start feeling sick to your stomach as it just goes, you know, a number you've never seen so large before. Well, that's like our spiritual debt too always ticking upward in our imperfection and in our uh, failures and in our sin against God. If you had a thousand lifetimes of good works, you wouldn't come close to paying off what we owe to a holy God. But here's the good news. God offers you a full pardon and he's willing to go into his own pocket to pay your debts. And if you let him do that, he will not leave you empty-handed like earthly bankruptcy, but he will immediately fill your eternal accounts with more than you could ever ask or imagine, and then make you his friend for all of eternity. In Psalm 32, David tells us how he personally laid hold of God's forgiveness, how he went through this spiritual bankruptcy process. He went into it being crushed by the weight of his guilt He came out of it stronger, more secure, more joyful than ever before, thanks to the grace and mercy of his Lord. We begin right above verse one in what's called the superscript. We read there, of David, a maskil. As an author, David is worth listening to. Some of you are readers and read lots of books, and you know that some authors are more worth listening to and some are less worth listening to. Or in the sort of celebrity or political world, there's always somebody who comes out with a tell-all book, right? But sometimes it's the person who is like, yeah, I was the chief of staff, and I'm telling you what I saw. Other times it's like, I was a guy who once dropped off a croissant in the assistant's office, and I saw things and you think, yeah, well, that person's not really worth listening to. But David is. Of course, he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and that's reason enough to listen to him. God signs off on this psalm, just like he does the rest of scripture. But, but in addition to that, as a writer, David speaks with the authority of experience and expertise. He has something to say and is worth listening to. Bible commentator John Phillips points out that among the characters of the Bible, real historic individuals, but among the, the figures of the Bible, David is one of the greatest sages of the Old Testament, one of the greatest saints of Scripture, one of the greatest sovereigns in all of human history but he is also one of the greatest sinners that we know of, a murderer, an adulterer, 
Uh, his, his mistakes led to the death of thousands of Israelites, members of his own family, bloodshed in war. He uh, was a thief. He was a liar. He had done all of these different things. He was one of the greatest sinners in all the Bible. And so when this guy speaks to us about forgiveness about the, the, the weight of guilt, when he speaks to us about closeness with God and redemption, oh, we should pay close attention. He begins in verse one and David says, how joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit is no deceit. From the beginning, David wants us to feel joy as we realize that God has made his forgiveness available to you. God, the perfect God, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who's in charge of all things, he says, I will give you my forgiveness if you want it. He makes it available to any person who's willing to receive it. It's a free gift. And that's good news that should fill up our hearts with celebration. Right from the start of this book, in Psalm 1, we're told about the, the love God has for people and the plan that he has for people and the desire that he has that they be filled with eternal joy. But there's a problem that we discover very quickly as we read through the scripture. The problem is we are unable to walk the road of righteousness on our own. We don't qualify. We can't do it. Maybe some of you have had a little scooter in the past, a little 50cc engine, right, that can put around town or something like that, but it's not street legal for the freeway. And even if you wanted to take it on the freeway, it's not advisable. It can't, it can't keep up with the pace of the freeway, right? Or I like to think about, I love those old timey hand cars that they had on the railways where it was like the little seesaw thing and two people would just be doing this on there and going like one-tenth of one mile per hour down the rail. Imagine trying to take that on the Highway 198. It's going to be really bad for everybody. It doesn't qualify. It doesn't measure up. And that's what it's like for us trying to walk the road of God's righteousness on our own. It ends in glory. It ends in goodness. It ends in everlasting life. But we don't qualify. We can't do it. We fall short of the standards of righteousness that are required. But now here in, in chapter 32, David reveals that there is a way, even though we are imperfect, even though we don't qualify, there's still a way to attain the spiritual happiness, the everlasting joy that God wants for human beings. And it's all thanks to the forgiveness of God. The message of the Psalms is that anyone can walk with the Lord, anyone can be forgiven no matter what they've done because God makes it possible. In verses one and two, David presents the problem. I, we have sin. And he prints, presents the solution. God has forgiveness. And in describing sin, he describes a spectrum of sin. Commentators are quick to note that he uses three terms for the wrong things that we do. And they all have a sort of a different aspect or they all have a, a different flavor to them. The Bible, the Old Testament has 15 different terms for sin, but David pulls out three of them. The first he uses is transgression. And this is a word that speaks of rebellion against God. It's when our hearts or our lives or our, our minds, when we say no to God, and it's something that we all do many, many times in our life, a countless number of times, illustrated by the fact that one of the first words that some of you probably spoke as babies was no, right? Your parents, you, you, your parents don't usually have a hard time, uh, you know, teaching kids no, but they have a hard time <laughs> getting them to do yes, right? And so a lot of times as babies, our first words are mama, papa, no, 
right? And the same is true about our hearts before the Lord, rebellion against God. The second word that David uses here is sin. And we use that word frequently. It's a word very commonly used in the Bible. And it's a a catch-all word, meaning to fall short or miss the mark of perfection. Nobody in here is perfect, not even close. And we miss the mark of perfection. And the Bible explains that, well, God is perfect. And if we want to live with him forever, you have to be perfect. You must be perfect as the Father in heaven is perfect. And that's a problem because we are full of sin. We fall short. We miss the target. We miss the bullseye. The third word he uses is iniquity. And this is an uglier term. It's a term that speaks of corruption and twistedness, acts of evil. And so we see that David is, is giving us a spectrum. He's not just talking about basic imperfection that everyone has, but he's also not talking about the worst, you know, abject acts of evil that people commit. It's, it's all of it. And he says, it all applies to you and to me, and it all can be forgiven. David also gives three terms to describe what the Lord wants to do with your sin and your guilt. First, he forgives. It's a word that means to carry something away. The Lord promises to carry our sins away. And then beyond that, he says, I will remember them no more. This is an amazing thing that we can't wrap our minds around. How can an omnipotent, all-knowing God forget something? He says, that's how powerful my mercy is. That's how powerful my compassion and my forgiveness is. I, in my own strength, will determine to not remember your sins anymore. He forgives. He carries them away. Second, David says that our sins can be covered. Now, he's not talking about a cover-up. That's always a negative thing that we hear a lot about every few seconds on the news today, right? God's not engaged in a cover-up in that sense. And it also doesn't mean just sweeping our guilt under a rug for it to fester. Maybe you've had to really quickly clean up the house or tidy your office desk because you're having a meeting and you don't really have time to do it properly. So a lot of stuff gets scooped into a drawer to be dealt with later on. That's not what God's doing with our sin either. Uh, When God covers something, he deals with the underlying problem. He deals with the, 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 the cleansing of that problem. Some of you have had a stain on your wall at home, and if you try to just paint over it with regular paint, the stain might bleed through that new coat of paint. But if you first treat the wall and paint on something like Kills Primer and then put a coat of paint on, well, that puts an end to the stain. It's made new, right? This is what God does when he talks about him covering our sin. He cleans while he covers. The Bible explains that the blood of Jesus cleanses us and makes us brand new. Though our sins are as scarlet, we're made white as snow. It purifies us and covers us in righteousness, wrapping us up in righteousness like a garment so that we can then walk with God and be in fellowship and friendship with him. Third, David tells us that God will not charge us with iniquity. Now, this is a big deal. Because it's one thing for him to say, you know, well, you know, it's one thing for him to say, I'm going to, I'm going to accept you as you are. But then he also says, I'm never going to charge you with the things that you've done if you receive my forgiveness. Sometimes we hear people talking about, you know, in the news, the statute of limitations for a crime, or sometimes people will commit a crime and they will have to flee to a country where there's no extradition because they know that if they come back, if they're in the presence of our legal system, they will be charged with that crime. Maybe you saw the story recently of Ermgard Furchner. 
Uh, she was in her late 90s, a German lady. At age 18, as a German in Germany, she worked as a secretary in a Nazi concentration camp. Now, almost 80 years later, the law finally caught up with her and she was brought into court. Now, at her job, all she did was paperwork. She didn't physically kill anyone. She didn't pull any triggers, but it was enough for her to be charged and to be found guilty for the aiding and abetting of the murder of more than 10,000 people. Those charges clung to her for all of those decades. There was nothing she could do to free her from the guilt of her past. The charges were just waiting for her. Now, God looks at you and he looks at me and he knows exactly what you've done, all of the ways that you have missed the mark of perfection and goodness and godliness in word, thought, and deed. He knows about every single one of them, the thousands upon thousands of counts of imperfection, of rebellion, of hate, of wickedness, of anger, of selfishness, of meanness, of vice. We're guilty of them all. But God then looks at your, your charges and he says, listen, I am going to offer to carry those charges away. I'll clean them. I will cover them. I will never bring them up again. I will never charge you for any of them if you're willing to receive my forgiveness. The offer sounds amazing until we read in whose spirit is no deceit. He says, oh, how joyful is the person in whose spirit is no deceit. Uh-oh. That's a problem. Do we have to be perfectly honest before we can be forgiven? The prophet Jeremiah said, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. That's not good news. So is this an offer that we can't really enjoy? One of those, you know, uh, government programs where they say, well, we're gonna do this, this, and this. Well, who qualifies? Not you, not you, not you, not you. Okay. Is it one of those mailers that you get? Uh, I remember when the kids were little, we would get those mailers. It's like, scratch off, you might win a car. And they're like, we might win a car. I said, we're not going to win a car. <laughs> everyone on the block, everyone in town got one, but go ahead and scratch it off. And you know what? We didn't win a car because it wasn't a real offer, right? It's an advertisement for you to go into more debt, not for them to relieve your debt. And so what's this talking about? You know, Jesus once said to his disciple, Nathaniel, as he walked up, he said, here truly is an Israelite in whom is no deceit. Okay, was that literally true? Was Nathaniel's heart really completely free of all dishonesty or deceit? No, we don't know a lot about Nathaniel. He's not one of the more prominent disciples in the gospels, but we know that he made the same mistakes as the rest of the 12. He argued over who would be the greatest in the kingdom. He failed to show up to the foot of the cross, instead choosing to run and hide. And one of the only times he does speak in the Bible is when he scoffs and jokes at the idea that anyone from Nazareth could be any good, right? So that's Nathaniel. And the Lord says, here's an Israelite in whom is no deceit. Or let's consider David himself. He had made many, many mistakes, had very many moments of significant dishonesty. Some of his dishonesty led to the, the slaughter of a bunch of priests. I mean, he, he had some real problems. And he's clearly saying that, hey, I've laid hold of forgiveness. So this no deceit line is, is telling us a couple of things. First of all, it's showing that God's bankruptcy process is not just about settling a debt and wiping the slate clean. It is the beginning point of a transformative process which completely changes changes us from the inside out, where he says, I'm going to not only deal with your sin and the ramifications of it, but I'm also going to change your heart so that you sin less and you are sanctified and you are conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. 
God doesn't just say, I'll square your dead and then you go your way, I'll go my way. He goes further and he says, I'm gonna make you a new creation so that you can be with me and walk with me and be a member of my household and serve me and ultimately rule and reign with Jesus Christ. On top of that, this term for deceit can also refer to slackness or a sluggishness to do an activity. And David is gonna, is gonna show here that he had this sluggishness at first and, and once he realized, and once he got rid of this sluggishness, he said, man, that's when uh, my life was opened up into the joy of God's forgiveness, where I got rid of that slackness and that sluggishness in my heart to do what God wanted me to do. Let's look at verse three. David says, when I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. There, what do you think of that? In case we are starting to think, okay, this loving God just forgives everything and forgives everyone so I can do whatever I want and I'll just fall backward into mercy, David says, hold on, that's a big mistake. He says, let me tell you what happens when you try to hold on to your sin. Let me tell you what happens when you couple up with your sin. Let me tell you what happens when you try to carry your guilt around instead of letting the Lord unburden it from you. We don't know when David wrote this song or what the particular situation was. A lot of scholars tie it to his sin with Bathsheba. That's definitely a contender. Whatever it was, he had fallen into sin and he had this guilt in his heart. But as he moved through life, he thought, I'm going to close the Lord out. I'm going to try to act like nothing is wrong. I'm going to hold this in my heart and hold this in my life and hope for the best. But it started eating him alive. We know something about the summer heat here in the valley, right? We have 10 and a half months of it. <laughs> Imagine those dog days of July, 115 degrees, and you'll open up the, you, you know, your weather app, and it's just orange on every direction, you know? It says, you shouldn't live here. Oh, Okay. Okay, imagine that's 115 degrees, but you have no shade, you have no air conditioning, you have no refrigeration, you have no cool water, you have no ice, you have no fans, you have nothing like that. You are just out in that heat hour after hour, day after day, week after week. And David said, that's what it was like. I was just cooking in the weight of my guilt. Now, David was a strong man. He had killed giants and lions and bears with his own hands. I've never done that, have you? But he was no match for guilt. He could face a grizzly, but he couldn't face his guilt. It was pummeling him from the inside out. Did you know that being weighed down by guilt is more than a metaphor? In fact, in 2013, Princeton University published a study showing that the feelings of guilt are indeed felt like physical weight in our minds and bodies. And David said, oh, I felt it. It was eating me up inside. It was destroying me from the inside, crushing me from the outside. And what a beautiful thing that, that Jesus, when he speaks to us, he says, come to me. I want to take your weight off of you because my yoke is easy, my burden is light. I don't weigh you down like that. I take and carry away the weight of your sin and I get rid of it. I don't remember it anymore. It's as far as the east is from the west and instead you can walk with me in rest. Now in verse four there, was David suggesting that God was inflicting this pain on him? Was he squeezing him out of some sort of anger or out of some sort of vengeance and say, oh, hey, you sinned against me and so man, I'm gonna hurt you back. What was going on there? 
On the one hand, when you read a psalm, you need to take the psalms before and after it. A lot of times they will be connected in very special ways. And so as you're studying a psalm, just give a read to the psalm right before and the one right after it. In Psalm 31, David was talking about the time when he was in his sin before he had received forgiveness here. And here's what he wrote in Psalm 31. My strength has failed because of my iniquity. My bones waste away. Sounds a lot like our verses here. He rightly understood the destructive nature of sin. You know, sin, it destroys us from the inside out. It destroys our relationships. It destroys our minds. It destroys our bodies in many cases. Paul talks about this in Romans 1. We've been referencing this recently in our studies where sinners are left to deal with the appropriate consequences of their choices. At the same time, the Bible is clear that though God is ready to forgive sin and to forgive any sinner, he will not ignore sin, especially in the lives of a Christian. He applies firm pressure on the sinner in order to draw us to repentance so that he can remove the weight of our guilt, so that he can unburden us. And he tells his children that he will discipline them when they sin because he loves them. I was a lifeguard for a few summers in college, and every Friday morning we would uh, do training and, and do different drills and things like that. I always really enjoyed practicing removing a swimmer with a neck injury from the pool. It was one of the more fun drills that we got to do. Uh, but so it, the idea is if somebody jumped in and crunches their head or their neck, they got a real problem. They're in water. And so you have to go in as a lifeguard, and it's sort of this team effort. But one of the lifeguards has to swim up and apply apply this hold with firm pressure with the hands on either side of the head and neck and you rotate that swimmer into a particular position and then you get them strapped tight onto a a backboard so that they can then be lifted out of the water because if those things don't happen, the swimmer is going to die, right? Makes sense. And so God applies that kind of pressure when we dive into sin, where he says, you're, you're drinking Drano unto yourself. You've, you've, you dived into sin and you, you're crunching your spiritual life. And now I'm going to apply this pressure to try to save you from, from the destructive power of this sin and lift you out of it. Verse five, David finally stops being a sluggard, spiritually speaking, and he says, then I acknowledge my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. There, what do you think of that? All David had to do to receive God's forgiveness was confess. Now, technically, we don't even see his confession here. This is how ready God is to forgive sinners. He says, I will confess to the Lord, and immediately forgiveness flowed from heaven. The guilt was gone. David had the relief he needed. So what is confession? Any of you who are parents have heard what a fake sorry sounds like? Go tell, go tell that kid that you punched in the face you're sorry. Sorry. Okay, well, I know that's not real. Is that what we're talking about? Do we just have to give some sort of lip service to God? Sorry, God. Like, is that what? No. What is biblical confession? Biblical confession is more than just saying a few words. Confession first means that we realize God's truth in our heart, that we agree with that truth, and then we turn from our own way, turn from our sin, and face God and say, you know what, God, you are right, I am wrong, I'm guilty, and I'm sorry, and I want to receive the mercy and the forgiveness that you have offered to me. That's confession. 
Does this mean that as a Christian, I don't have forgiveness for individual sins until I confess for each one of them? Believe it or not, there are some uh, Christian traditions and churches that hold a doctrine like that, that if you don't physically, specifically confess for every sin, you're in trouble if you die. How could you ever confess every imperfection in your heart? You couldn't. The truth is, the Bible explains that if you're a Christian, if you've been born again, you have eternal forgiveness, everlasting life right now. In Christ, we're told in Ephesians 1, we have redemption through his blood. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he has poured out on us. And so he gives us this image that there you are needing the cleansing of of the blood of Christ. And the Lord says, I'm going to pour his blood all over you to wash you clean. God never comes back and says, you know, at sin, one trillion, three hundred and whatever, I decided that you, you, I just, I got to sop up some of that grace and forgiveness. He comes with a spiritual sponge and takes away some of our forgiveness. That's not what God does. He's poured out redemption. You have it thanks to the work of Jesus Christ. And yet we turn to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, and what do we read there? It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. Okay, so which is it? There are two aspects of forgiveness in the Bible. The first is judicial, or we might call positional. Has your debt been paid by Jesus Christ? If you are in Christ, if you are born again, then Christ's death on the cross dealt with all of your sin, past, present, and future. You are sealed with a promise. It is done. When the judge of heaven and earth looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees the righteousness of his son wrapped around you, and he pronounces you clean. But then the Bible explains there is also relational forgiveness. In just the same way that you have relational uh, uh, hurts or health in your actual relationships here on earth with friends and family members and others. This relational forgiveness is something that we also want to look at. When we rebel against God, when we go our own way, we then remove ourselves from his boundaries and his leading and his commands. And those sins bring breaches and barriers into our relationship with the Lord. Through confession, we are able to once again live in the fullness of his grace. Not confession to a priest, just confession of your heart to the Lord, where you agree with God and turn towards him and, and embrace what he has told you to do. This, this whole idea of positional and relational forgiveness is depicted well in the parable of prodigal son. The son went out from the father's house on his own way, He said, I'm done with the father. I'm going to go my own way. He went right into sin, right into ruin, right into destruction. The father did not announce or take an ad out in the paper that said, the prodigal is no longer my son. Much the contrary. He considered him his son the whole time and he would go and look on the horizon and wait expectantly for the son, hoping the son would return. And then finally, the son came to his senses and then he returned home. And once he returned home, he was able to not just have the title of son, but the benefits of the father's love. And we see them there embracing and reconciling and rejoicing together in a way that was only possible when they were together under the father's care. So another question is, if God knows everything, why do I need to confess? Isaiah 55 explains that when we seek God, when we confess and abandon our own way and instead embrace the Lord and walk with him, he's able to cover us with his compassion and freely forgive. 
On a cold morning outside, have you ever been one of those like umbrella space heater things? It has a sort of a radius of heat. And if you step out of that radius, you're cold. If you step into the radius, you're warm. We can think of it in that sense. Through confession, we step from the shadow of guilt into the light of God's mercy. The prodigal not only had to mentally admit he was wrong, he had to leave the pigsty, return to his father. Proverbs 28 puts it very plainly. It says, whoever confesses and renounces their sin will find mercy. Now, David says here, I did not conceal my iniquity. We are no good at covering up sin. Don't try to cover up your sin before the Lord. Don't think for one minute that you could clean yourself up and come to the Lord and impress him. A while ago, one of our little ones uh, got sick to their stomach in the middle of the night. And one of the other kids came in and said, hey, they threw up. And so, you know, we got up, we went in to make sure they were okay. And we said, hey, are you okay? Where did you throw up? I threw up in the bathroom. Okay, uh, it's okay. It's okay, dad, I cleaned it up. <laughs> Man, clean isn't the word I'd use, <laughs> right? They're a little one, it's the middle of the night. You just chummed in the bathroom. It's dark. They just grabbed whatever towel they could find and like mm, mm, cleaned it up. They needed a parent, a mom, to actually... <laughs> I'm not going to try to take credit. I didn't clean that up. They needed a parent to actually take care of it. And don't try to cover your sin. Let the professional take care of it. God will cleanse you of your sin. You're not going to cleanse yourself of your sin. Verse six, therefore, let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. When great floodwaters come, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. There, what do you think of that? David is not suggesting all his problems were immediately solved the moment he confessed. He was a man who knew many troubles for many years. In fact, in the wake of his sin with Bathsheba, the Lord came to him. He said, I forgive you. We're back in fellowship. We're back in friendship together, but you are going to have trouble in your family for the rest of your life because of what you've done here. So what's David talking about? Well, in the final judgment, when it all comes down to it, in the end, David knew he was safe. He would be delivered just as Noah was delivered in the ark when the floodwaters came. There's a judgment coming. If you're not a Christian, you're going to be judged for your sin. You're going to stand before God's throne. Your debts will be listed and they must be paid. You know, for the Christians here today, it's not that we don't pay our debts. It's that the debts have been paid by Jesus Christ. He stands ready to pay your debts because the wages of sin is death and they must be paid because God is not only loving and forgiving, he is holy and righteous and just. And so sin must be dealt with. And without Christ, there's no deliverance. You won't escape the judgment. There's also a global judgment coming one day. The whole world will be flooded with the wrath of God. It's depicted for us in many books of the Bible, book of the Revelation, last parts of Daniel in particular. Knowing that judgment is coming, let everyone who is faithful pray immediately. If you want salvation, there's no time to lose. Call out to God for forgiveness. Hide yourself in him. Don't wait. 
God is ready to receive each one of us as spiritual refugees, covering us and sustaining us and making us new. That's not just David's opinion. That's not just my opinion. The Lord God himself would verify the message of this song. It is the Lord speaking in the next verses where we read, I will instruct you and show you the way to go. With my eye on you, I will give counsel. Do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding that must be controlled with bit and bridle or else it will not come near to you. Why would anyone refuse God's offer of salvation and forgiveness? It happens every day. That's the heart of man, hard, stubborn. In fact, we saw a few weeks ago in our study of Isaiah chapter one, how God's people had become so stubborn, so hard-hearted that they were indeed dumber than donkeys, the Lord said, at least spiritually speaking. The truth is our hearts are inclined to evil. We're prone to wander. The Bible reveals that. We need to believe it and understand it and make adjustments accordingly. We will wander right into ruin if we don't trust the Lord and go his way. Have you ever heard of Harry Randall Truman? Not the president, that's somebody else. The Mount St. Helens resident. He was warned by by experts and law enforcement to evacuate his home that was near Mount St. Helens in 1980. Even precursor earthquakes had knocked him out of bed as he slept at least one night. In response, he didn't pack up and leave. He moved his mattress into the basement. Interviewers came and said, why aren't you leaving? He said, that mountain's a mile away. It ain't gonna hurt me. You couldn't pull me out with a mule team. No mules would be necessary because on May 18, he was vaporized along with everything he owned because he thought, it can't happen. It's not gonna happen to me. And now he's gone. A person who doesn't admit they're a sinner and in need of salvation and then receive the free gift of God's salvation is like Harry Randall Truman. They're like an ignorant mule with no understanding. They've got nowhere to go but into destruction. And it's done needlessly. I will show you the way to go with my eye on you. I will give counsel, the Lord says. God does not guide with a whip, but with gentleness. He leads, he doesn't drive. The way he shows us to go is the way from Psalm 1. And it is the way where in the end, everything we do prospers, where our lives are made strong and fruitful, able to weather the seasons that come our way, always growing, always developing. This is the way that the Lord wants to guide us in if we're willing to walk with him. John Phillips gives us some important insight here. He writes, if the Lord is to guide us with his eye, it means we must stay close to him. A person cannot give another person a warning look or a warm look or a welcoming look if he's in Chicago and the friend is in Atlanta. Let us see to it that we allow our Lord to guide us by keeping our Bibles open and our eye ever looking to him. He will make it plain what we ought to do. God's counsel isn't only for the sinner on day one of his salvation. It is for the saint every single day of our lives as we're counseled by God, as we're led by him, as we're in his presence and received from him. Verse 10, many pains come to the wicked, but the one who trusts in the Lord will have faithful love surrounding him. To trust God means to depend on his faithful love. It means to put our hope in him rather than our own strength or our own plans or the systems of this world. To trust the Lord means to enter into this covenant love he talks about that we acknowledge the truth about ourselves and we receive his love and love him in return. That's how you trust the Lord. That's how you walk in the joy of this song. And finally, verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. 
A psalm like this makes us think a lot about our mistakes and how we fall short of God's glory. But let's remember what David's overall perspective is here. He started with joy. He's ending with joy. He says, here's what's true about God's forgiveness. It doesn't matter that we're guilty. God is willing to forgive. Here's how we can have it day by day, no matter what we've done. Here's how God plans to revolutionize our lives and surround us like a shield and a refuge and a teacher and and do so with the kindness of a friend. So let's praise the Lord for it is his conclusion. If we pause to consider all that God had forgiven David, all that God had forgiven Paul, all that he has forgiven you and me, the spiritual reaction should be like finding out you have won the lottery, that the scratcher in the mail is true and you are a winner and that we're all winners thanks to Jesus Christ. Despite his many mistakes, David felt no need to carry his guilt anymore. Man, David was more guilty, I'm willing to say, than all of us in this room individually. And on the one sense, we are all sinners. On the other sense, his sins directly cause the death of tens of thousands of people at certain points and the deaths of members of his own family and the deaths and the slaughter of priests. None of us are guilty of that. We're guilty of many things. But David, as our example said, he says, you know what? I don't need to carry my guilt anymore. I've confessed it. I've turned from it. It was done. It was gone. God had carried it away and it was now replaced by spiritual joy. How joyful are you? That's how the text opened, right? How joyful is the one? David says forgiven people are joyful people. Paul says the same thing. He described himself as overflowing with joy in 2 Corinthians. The Christian life is meant to be full of joy and peace and overflowing with hope because the Lord bears away our guilt. He leads us into a way full of joy and he says, my joy is your strength. Has God borne away your guilt? Are you a Christian this morning or are you still on the run from him as judge? In September of 2021, at the age of 96, Ermgard Furchner, she went on the run she, they, she said, hey, they're going to arraign me. They're going to charge me with these crimes. She went on the run, hoping to avoid her trial. She's picked up a few hours later. It didn't go very well for her. Maybe you're on the run, spiritually speaking. You can't avoid this judge. Turn yourself in. Because when you turn yourself into this judge, he doesn't throw the book of judgment at you. He throws the book of life at you. He throws a book of grace at you. He cleans your slate and cancels your debts and makes you new. You don't have to work off your guilt. You are saved by grace through faith, not of works. In fact, when Paul spoke in Romans about how we are justified by faith alone, how salvation is all a work of God's grace, he used this psalm as his Old Testament basis. If you believe what God has revealed in scripture, if you come to him in repentance and acknowledge your spiritual bankruptcy, he will forgive you. It is said and it is done. For Christians... Forgiveness isn't new. It's not a one-time thing. It's not finished. In this Psalm, David reminds us that God's forgiveness still applies day by day by day. David was a believer when all of this was going on and he still needed God's forgiveness. And he still needed to be reminded that he agrees with God about who we are and who he is. And we wanted to stay in that close relationship and he needed to be in the habit of confession so that he could receive all of the blessings of God's forgiveness as he walked with him. He could be quick to praise, quick to rejoice, quick to pray in confession. And that's what we want to be too as we discover more and more of what God has saved us from, what he has saved us for, and we walk with him on this joyful way he's leading us down.